It's February 24th, 2016, and welcome to another edition of Bite Marks Cafe, where we serve you the first bite of today's technology. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa. First up today, we'll share a few updates on some locally built apps. Then we'll hear about a couple of upcoming events. Andy Goshorn uh, <laughs> is here. We'll get that correct. Joins us to tell us about the Sea Perch Regionals on Saturday. Then Kathleen Cabral from Leeward Community College returns to tell us about the next Geek Day also on Saturday. And finally, we'll talk to Dr. Chris Bird. Scott Crawford, Tia Brown, and Roxy Silva about the Nature Conservancy initiative called the Opihi Partnership. Of course, we always welcome your comments and questions as part of that conversation. You can contact us by calling in or sending us a tweet after the break. And of course, uh, today for the Geek Beat in the morning, we talked a little bit about the three locally built apps, and uh, we wanted to share some updates here on Bite Mars Cafe. Now, you know, we only get like a couple of seconds really to to really get as much out as we can. We talk very fast, it's, even it, faster it, than we do on the radio. Right, and it's kind of stressful. But <laughs> uh, but uh, we wanted to, you know, just talk a little bit about a uh, couple of the three apps, the, the, well, the three apps. Moment Romance is one of them. You know, Moment Romance, I think the, 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 key, the key takeaway from Moment Romance is that it's in the moment. It's you go to a site or like a restaurant, you f- find somebody that's part of the, you know, part of the community. And then you can actually meet them there. Yes, Moment Romance is uh, made by Kyle Tanoi. We had him on the air less than a month ago talking about it being launched before Valentine's Day, which it did. And it's a dating app, but unlike most apps which sort of follow the Tinder model with big pictures and swiping, it's about the moment. It's about a location. And so you need to be in a place and in the mood to meet somebody before you can be found. So I, so think I it find really that kinda, very interesting. It kind of removes all the sort of buildup of email, tri- you know, going back well, and forth. certainly all the Facebook stalking doesn't happen either. Yeah, that's true. Okay, okay. <laughs> so well, the next one uh, we did was uh, Hudoku. 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 Yes. And which is kind of a takeoff on Sudoku, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? Which is the number game. And typically you can imagine like this three by three matrix or, you know, larger matrices of numbers. Well, this is really based on colors. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was a pretty interesting, uh, you know, idea just to sort of arrange these colors and shades and 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 actually make a game out of it. Right. It's certainly uh, it, it is a puzzle game. It is pretty compelling. It's by uh, artist Gabe uh, Gabriel um, Mott. Mott, who re- relocated here to Honolulu. Mm-hmm. He was on Maui before, and he's actually had this app out for quite some time. The reason why it was worthy of note is he is now, and you and I fortunately have now been included in the beta test for the next iteration Called? of Hudoku, with it, which is Hudoku Picks. Yeah. So now you can take a picture, say it's a sunset, your cute dog. It'll choose colors from that picture to make the theme and then you use the game the way you normally would you would put the pick colors in a certain order but if you successfully complete the puzzle you can see the picture so there are a number of applications for this and uh, certainly would also perhaps work for valentine's day as well now i sent you a picture today did you did you... i didn't i was a little scared to go through the ah. puzzle i wasn't sure what kind of a picture i was going to get but that's hudoku okay well the uh, the final one that we covered this morning was called hobnob hobnob's been around for a little while but it's pretty cool because what i find useful about it is that it provides you with all the tools to create basically a little picture of an event with all the information, all the details of where, when, you know, and, and uh, uh, what's the name of the event. 
And then you can send it to all the people that you'd like to who are in your mobile contact list. Right. It's an event app for RSVPs. You can share photos with everybody at the event. But the key differentiator, because all event invite programs are pretty much a disaster, Facebook and events, you know, uh, Evite, nobody uses should use mm-hmm, Evite. Mm-hmm. So this is all based on text messages. So even if you have a flip phone with a keypad, you can actually still participate. You can get the invitation. You can reply yes and say you're in and send pictures and share pictures. So it's pretty good. And the reason why they were notable is that they, uh, earlier this month, closed a seed round of funding $2.25 million. So people are seeing value in what they're delivering. Right. And, you know, most of the uh, startups, I mean, you know, after the seed seed round or accelerator round, I mean, they're they're happy to get like a $500,000, maybe, you know, maybe close to a million, but to get a a $2.25 million uh, seed round. That's that's very impressive. And we should mention that tomorrow's HVCA Awards, um, the Hawaii Venture Capital Association, um, Hobnob is one of the finalists for uh, both People's Choice uh, App of the Year, mm-hmm. as well as, I think, for the investment that they got. So they could uh, be get further recognition for their great work. That's uh, Tina Fitch, uh, Mark, and Tiffany Cazada, who we've featured many times here mm-hmm. on By Mark's Cafe. And if you missed uh, any of that, we'll post the uh, uh, the links on the show notes later on tonight. And, of course, now we want to welcome Andy Gosh, Gashorn, who, who is from the Coast Guard, and he's here to tell us about the upcoming Sea Perch Regional Competition. Welcome to the show, Andy. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. Now, you know, it's been probably a year since we had you on the last time. And, of course, the, the first sea perch that I went to, uh, which is over over at the uh, Coast Guard, I mean, it was pretty cool. It was all underwater. So maybe you can share a little bit about what this year's competition is going to be like. Certainly. So this year, so every year, sea perch is a national-run uh, competition where students are given a, a robot kit, and they have to design their robot in any way they want to complete that year's obstacles. So every year we have an obstacle course that consists of uh, various hoops at different heights and angles that the robot has to navigate through. But then this year the the additional challenge is there are four underwater orb dispensers. So we have softballs, golf balls, uh, wiffle balls that are all floating in these tubes down uh, underneath the water surface. Mm. And they Mm -hmm. have to maneuver their robot not only to free the orb, then they have to catch it from the surface of the uh, pool, and they have to take it down to a bucket underneath and distribute it underwater. And so not only are they uh, activating uh, levers, they're actually retrieving uh, balls and having to move them to an area to earn points. Mm-hmm. I, I love the different robotics programs and how they all differentiate from themselves. The one that blows my mind about this one, of course, is that you're functioning in three dimensions. You know, it, it's not just left and right moving a robot uh, through goals and doing things like that, but there's ascending and descending. There's buoyancy and, and issues like that. Um, how how does that work for a school? I mean, certainly they would have to have access. They can't all be building these robots in their bathtubs, correct? Absolutely. That is one of the biggest challenges we see is, is as the students take that learning to that third dimension. So what we try to do is um, open up the base. Uh, the, so just last weekend we had an uh, open, comp- uh, open pool day where the kids could bring their robots to the pool, practice it, because exactly what you said, um, sadly we've seen robots that will show up on game day that sink to the bottom of the pool and can't get up, or conversely, put so much buoyancy in there, they can't actually submerge it and get down. So there's a lot of learning that happens real time in the pool as the students learn how to adjust for buoyancy and constant. So, so that's an indication that they haven't really tested it in an actual pool. Correct. It's, it, we struggle to get access uh, for a lot of these schools that don't have uh, necessarily a pool right on their work facility or at their school. So, mm-hmm. And uh, it's fair to say that the, the, the what's in the water would affect it, too. If there's a lot of chlorine or if there's salt, if you're talking about salt water, that affects buoyancy as well. It does a little bit, not not to the extent that the, uh, these mm-hmm. students need for the robots, but there is an uh, impact, yes. Gotcha. How have uh, the numbers of teams uh, changed over last year to this year? Is it, is it increasing? So we're, every year we're increasing. This year, uh, I'm 
pleased to see that we've actually grown our elementary school um, uh, population. So we now have over 60% of the entries are from elementary school. We have 19 teams uh, from the elementary, eight middle school, and uh, uh, six high school teams. So 38 schools overall, or 38 teams overall, 33 different schools. And we, since we also have another um, uh, competition in May for underwater robotics, we're seeing a little bit of migration where some of the older high school and established middle schools are moving on to a little bit more advanced mm. program in the in the late uh, spring. And we're seeing more at the, the entry-level schools, the elementary level, coming into Seaford, mm-hmm. which are really excited. Now, access to a pool is one issue, but also many of these robotics programs are about a specific platform, um, like VEX. The, the actual building blocks of it. it for um, underwater robotics, is it more open, free-for-all? Is it city mill and PVC pipes? Or are, is there also kind of a, a base set they would use to construct these robots? So for Seaperch, that's one of the great things about it is it's a robot in a box. So um, And we couldn't get uh, the contact we get with the community without the help of uh, Pearl Harbor Navy Shipyard who and also our friends at Spa War who have, through grant money, been able to provide seed kits to a lot of these schools ah. um, to get kits out to the school because while – any robot could be used using the um, as long as they use a certain size motor, which is pretty small. Um, we let them modify that in any way, shape, or form. So it's really not so much about the platform per se, but even taking the platform out of it, we try to get kits to the schools to help them get um, their footstep, you know, foot in the door, and not worry about a, a high-end platform like Vex or in first. Now, Andy, uh, you're with the uh, Coast Guard, and 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 I would look at you as being sort of the the. Uh, um, administrator of this program? I mean, where do you find all the volunteers outside of the teachers that are, you know, supporting the schools? Are there people that you can tap to actually be mentors for the schools? I mean, how how do you build this network of people that are supporting this program? Well, the Coast Guard has a long history of being a uh, community-run organization. If you Mm -hmm. go back in our history when we were a life-saving service, you know, our local stations were manned by the community. Those are the folks going out on the boats that save lives offshore. So the Coast Guard owes a great debt to the folks who came, the communities who came before us to put us where we are today. So it's you know, it's the least we can do to get back out in the community to help. So we do have, uh, over the years, we've established good relationships with the teachers who return every year to do these programs. And every year, we, we never have a shortage of volunteers within the Coast Guard to give up, a, you know, some time after work, come in on a Saturday to help run these competitions. But uh, we're definitely always looking for uh, more people who are interested to come and help out. Many hands makes light work. Mm-hmm. Now, are these uh, competitions open to the public? Is it an opportunity for us to also see the expertise and the talents and certainly the enthusiasm of these uh, students? They certainly are. Um, it's uh, like any DOD facility. Uh, there is this uh, standard base access rule. So anyone who's coming to the event uh, will need to go through the standard base access process, um, process. But it will be at the Coast Guard Base, 400 Sand Island Parkway down in Sand Island. Um, and it will be this uh, Saturday from 830 till about 12 o'clock. And then the uh, the uh, the winners from this competition will go on to a national competition, right? So this is the regionals, and then where is the nationals? When is that, when is that going to take place? That's right. So this is the regional competition, uh, which will feed to the national competition at the Louisiana State University this um, summer. I believe it's in late May. It's going to be the national competition. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Very good. Very well, good. if somebody wanted to participate, is there a place they can find more information? Certainly. Uh, we uh, best place to follow us is at Sea Perch. That's S E A. P-E-R-C-H dash Hawaii dot org, or they can follow us at the same uh, heading on Facebook. Sounds good. Thanks, Andy, for joining us. Thank you for having me. And, of course, uh, next up is Kathleen Cabral from Leeward Community College, and she's here to tell us about the annual Geek Day. Hi. I'm so happy to be back again. Thank you. Yeah, it's like been a year. It's been... (laughs) Oh, yeah, you're right. You're right. We, yeah, we're, we're so. What uh, number is this? You know, I was thinking about that on the way over. It's actually our eighth one, but okay. our sixth on our own. 
Because you remember right, where right. we started. We started with HMAUS, mm-hmm. the Hawaii Mac and Apple Users uh, Society, mm-hmm. and Joan Matsukawa. Joan still comes. Sure. <laughs> so a nice little shout-out to Joan. She really helped us get started. And um, we used to do this in October with her, but we end up having all these other things happening on the campus, and we kind of became a splinter group mm-hmm. and uh, decided to do this in uh, February. We, we select February because it's career and technology. Technical Education Month uh, on a national thing. So this sort of highlights our our computer science and our digital media and sometimes our television production programs. So we have that core of information in the faculty. And then we're all just curious. I mean, we sit down and and talk about, well, what did you hear? What did you see? And that's, that's how some of the sessions and uh, things that we offer happen. And, you know, that it's good, splinter group or not. I mean, the great thing about our community is that uh, geeks are certainly plentiful and growing. Uh, the, the geek meet, the, the, the geek beat, there's, there's, <laughs> yes. geek, there's geekery there's no happening. Geeks everywhere. <laughs> you can't and get rid of us. We try really hard to um, go for all levels of geeks. So I, I, I still remember one day uh, a, a lady from the a community came with a problem with her laptop. She just, there was something about her email. It took her all day to solve the problem, but we solved it for her. And uh, at the same time, you had people, that was the year we also did things on Raspberry Pi. So there were, it was such a range that year. I felt so good that we were. So this year, as you know, you have it every year mm-hmm. and you know, in a year, a short that, that short time, I mean, a lot of things can change. Unbelievable. What is it that you see being perhaps more top of mind this year than it was last year? You know, I, I think the interconnectedness of everything and just the fact that you, we used to do things on, well, here's, your, here's how you do this on your phone or here's how you do this on your tablet. And now there's a lot of this is what you do and you can do it everywhere. Mm-hmm. And, um, and this is how you can control something from your home by using all these other things. Mm-hmm. So it's – we talked about for years that technology is not something that you're going to use occasionally, that it is indeed going to become just woven into the fabric of everyday life. And I, mean, you, I certainly see it on campus where I see the tops of heads all the time <laughs> because in between classes, people are walking around with their eyes on their phone. Absolutely. And so what used to be people looking at each other and you'd see eyes, now you see tops of heads. Mm-hmm. And there is interaction, mm-hmm. but they're interacting perhaps with people who aren't there with them. Absolutely. So, Absolutely. And it's not like they're being isolationalists right. at all. Actually, the com- the connections they're making is far more than I think I used to when I was in college, that's for sure. So Geek Day uh, has a number of workshops. Are there any specifics uh, that you could share? Well, I think this year what's going to be Fun, at least for me, is we we bought a uh, several of the Google Cardboard, so we mm-hmm. can do like a. I was going to say poor man's, but it's really not. It's like an everyday man's version of Oculus, and and have people have the chance. That's the other. I think wonderful part about Geek Day is you can come in and test out some things. We're also going to be having. Um, you can come and play with BB8. And Ali, we're setting up a nice little uh, place in our digital cafe so you can have um, an app actually using a tablet to control these two little creatures that yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. 
uh, the BB-8 has won my heart. It's like <laughs> I want to adopt him. Um, and we're also going to have uh, we're going to do something on podcasts. I think that serial just changed the game, and um, what used to be what people were thinking, well, that's sort of such a long time ago, podcast, now becomes so trendy. It's well, yeah, there's definitely been a resurgence of, of podcasting, and of course, the uh, the amount of uh, detail that goes into production of a podcast, I'm sure Ryan can talk about some of the podcasts that you've produced, but... You know, there's a lot of work that goes into Absolutely. like a serial podcast. Yeah, yesterday was the, my 11th year anniversary of the first podcast I posted. With the loss. After, Congratulations. Yeah. But it was to, to imagine what it took to get it done back then versus all the tools and now the audience that you have today, it's certainly something I would encourage people to look into. Oh, definitely, definitely. And and we're also doing one on, on like, a user experience on Instagram because we have uh, – we're really lucky because we have all these – experts in their fields. Mm -hmm. And these are all pretty much instructors, lecturers, professors. They are are all connected to the college. Mm -hmm. We have uh, a guest, two guests from Manoa that are coming in. And uh, one is going to be talking about the Internet of Things. And uh, I think he titled it the Internet of Insecure Things (laughs) because he's a little concerned about everything being so connected. Um, And computer security just... We, you can't do enough of that. So that, that has been a perennial um, session that is always highly attended because each year there's something new that we should know about. And uh, the event is free, right? So It is. It's our thank you to the uh, – just like the Coast Guard is thanking the community. We are, feel so lucky to have uh, – so many wonderful people that volunteer for our college on so many different levels. It's our way of saying thank you to the community mm-hmm. and to serve as a resource. And then let them also know that we've got all these programs. And, you know, uh, at this point, everybody has to keep on top of things in their job. So um, sometimes it's fun, like doing the BB-8 and Ollie, the app-enabled droids, but a lot of it is also just making sure that you know what to look for so that you know the latest thing to learn and then how to apply it to everyday life and your job. Right, so your attendees aren't just students. I mean, they could be anybody from our community who maybe you know might be interested in this technology. Absolutely. It's, it's quite a range, and it's kind of neat because there's a, a, a community of people who've come every year, mm-hmm. so they know each other, and each year there are new people that come. We try to be the best hosts in the world. We offer free coffee. There's door prizes. We just want people... People to enjoy themselves. So that's this Saturday, 10 a.m. to 3 p.m. at Leeward Community College. If people wanted to find more information, look up some of the session workshops, where can they go? They go to our website, www.leeward.hawaii.edu slash Geek Day. Very good. Thanks, Kathleen, for joining us. Well, thank you so much for having me, and I want to see you guys there. Yes. Okay, great. We'll make it a point. And, of course, we'll take a short break, and when we return, we'll be joined by Dr. Chris Bird, Scott Crawford, Tia Brown, Roxy Silva, who will tell us about their work on the Opihi Partnership. What is the current state of this beloved local limpet, this favorite delicacy, in fact? We'd, of course, love your thoughts or questions as part of that conversation. You can give us a call at 941-3689 or toll-free from the neighbor islands at 877-941-3689. And, of course, we're monitoring Twitter, and you can tweet us your questions at BiteMarks or at Hawaii. This is BiteMarks Cafe. Hi, this is Ray Cruz inviting you to join me tonight from 8 to 10 for Latin Beat, 
I'll be playing classic Afro-Cuban Latin jazz, Latin big band classics, and share the latest releases in Latin jazz. That's Latin Beat tonight from 8 to 10 here on HBR2, member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. See you tonight. Hi, this is Ari Shapiro in Washington, D.C. And this is Kelly McEvers in Culver City, California. And people listening to the show might not know that in front of each of us, there is a red phone. Kind of like that phone that must be in the president's office, right? Except this is so that in the middle of the show, when news breaks, Kelly and I can talk about how we can give you the most relevant of the moment show anywhere. Are you sure it's only for when news breaks? Okay, sometimes it's also for gossip. (laughs) Join us every afternoon on All Things Considered. Weekdays at noon. Support for Bite Marks Cafe comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk show programming. Mahalo to contributors Whole Foods Market Hawaii and Ulupono Initiative. Welcome back to Bite Marks Cafe. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa. And joining us today are Dr. Chris Bird, Scott Crawford, Tia Brown, and Roxy Silva. Chris is an assistant professor of biology at Texas A&M University and did his doctorate and postdoctorate research on Opihi populations and is calling in from Texas. And, of course, Scott lives in Hana and uh, Hana Maui and is the executive director for the Kipahulu Ohana and secretary for the Namamo Omuolea, both uh, nonprofit community organizations on uh, in East Maui. And we want to welcome both uh, Chris and Scott by phone. Welcome to the show. Yeah. Thank and you. Thanks for having us. Good to be on. Excellent. Thanks, Bert and Ryan. Thank you. Now, in the studio, that's not all. We have Tia Brown and Roxy Silva. Tia is the Permits and Policy Coordinator for NOAA's Papahanaumokuakea Marine National Monument and is a graduate of the Richardson School of Law. Roxy, meanwhile, is originally from Hana and graduated with a marine science degree from the University of Hawaii at Hilo. Go Vulcans! She is the Maui Marine Program Coordinator for the Nature Conservancy. And welcome you to Bite Marks Cafe. Mahalo, Ryan and Bert. Thank you. And, of course, uh, what prompted this, the, uh, the Opihi partnership? And, of course, we'd love to hear your questions and comments. And that number to call is 941-3689 on Oahu or... 877-941-3689 from the neighbor islands. And, of course, we want to welcome you guys all. And, again, there's a, there's a full crowd here it's a on the phone set. and in the studio. House. That's right. And we want to start maybe with uh, uh, Dr. Chris Bird from Texas A&M. And, and, Chris, tell us a little bit about what you were studying that got this whole partnership started. Well, I started my studies on Opihi in about the year 2000. And it wasn't until 2008 that the OPE partnership started. And it was the communities in Maui that determined that they really wanted to do something to help uh, increase the amount of OPE on their shoreline. Uh, They reached out to the Nature Conservancy, who reached out to myself, uh, the University of Hawaii, where I was at the time, as well as NOAA and DLNR, um, the Koalave Island Reserve Commission, and several other agencies around the state who are also interested in uh, monitoring their OPE populations. And uh, we all got together down in Hana in 2008, and we um, hashed out the outline of what the OPE partnership was going to be and what it's grown into today. Now, when you talk about uh, 
trying to find a way to foster and help grow the population of Opihi. Certainly in uh, local lore, there's a lot of stories about how Opihi affects the population of Opihi pickers. Um, but uh, I'm kind of c- curious what uh, your research might have focused on that specifically could have addressed or looked at um, really why it seemed to be either was it a matter of growing demand or really what was it a matter of maybe changing environmental conditions that changed the availability of Opihi? That's a really good question, and we don't 100% know the answer to it, but our best answer would be that when the traditional Hawaiian rules were changed to the uh, Western-style rules in the late 1800s, that's when the decline of Opihi started, and there are uh, data from the Opihi fishery in the early 1900s showing a drastic decrease, and by about 1944, it looks like the OPE fishery had completely crashed out, which means that there were 90% less OPE being harvested and sold in markets than there had been uh, at the first record in 1900. Hmm. Well, that's interesting because you would think back in the 1900s, there were a lot less people and, you know, for the populations to have been decimated way back then. And it's probably even worse now. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of curious why it took so long to actually get this sort of study going. But before we get into the details, I want to get Scott on the line. And, and Scott, tell us a little bit about what you do with the Kipohulu Ohana. Well, the um, two communities in East Maui are both um, part of the OPE partnership, and um, we both have community-based Makai management projects that are part of our overall programs. And um, just trying to get local communities involved with managing the shoreline and in, a, in an active way. And, um, you know, the OPE is something that is um, a lot of, uh, you know, it's a very traditional part of the Hawaiian diet and something that people like to have at luau's and graduation parties and things like that. But there was a real sense in the community that, you know, the, they had seen the populations declining over years and, uh, um, you know, the OPE just weren't available in the same way and um, a concern about um, what that meant for the future and you know is there something we can do to make sure that this is still available for future generations so we got together with uh, you know through the Nature Conservancy with Dr. Bird and and helped to develop the kind of monitoring uh, protocol to um, have some scientific, you know, some quantifiable data on the populations to kind of establish a baseline. And then um, for several years now, we've been doing this um, monitoring um, survey several times a year. And then within those two communities, um, one is in partnership with uh, the Haleakala National Park um, along the shoreline there, and the other, the other is a piece of ca- uh, property owned by the county of Maui. And both of them, we decided to establish uh, rest areas, which is kind of using a traditional Hawaiian management um, technique. And, um, you know, so they're, they're voluntary rest areas where we have just put up signage and have hmm. sort of outreach um, educational programs in the community to just get people to voluntarily stop picking within a certain stretch of shoreline for a period of um, for three years, at least trial period, in order to see if that will allow the OPE population to rebound not only within that area but also kind of spill over into surrounding areas. Mm-hmm. Now, I so talk- that's basically what what we're doing. 
Yeah, I definitely want to hear more about that that process and what you might learn as far as its effectiveness. But um, I, I did have a couple of questions more kind of on the marine science side. Now, when we talk about opihi, we're talking about a kind of sea snail, kind of limpet. And um, I always wondered if there is anything particular about opihi in Hawaii, or is it essentially the, we're talking about the same species around the world? I know that I've heard people talking about importing opihi from other parts of the world to kind of meet the demand and perhaps not put so much of a strain on our local population. So, uh, uh, Roxy, can you tell us about opihi? Is it special in Hawaii, or is it really part of a, a, a more global family? Well, actually, our opihi here in Hawaii are endemic, so we have three species, and we we find that they are in their certain zones on the shoreline. So we find blackfoot opihi, which are known as makayauli, um, yellowfoot opihi, which are highly sought after, hmm. um, more ono, you know, <laughs> and they're known as opihi alinalina. Mm-hmm. And lastly, opihi koele, and they can be found under the tide zone, the tide. So you're not finding these, say, in like Japan or, or, or uh you know, New Zealand or anything. No, so these three oh. species are endemic to Hawaii only. No, you know, but you, you bring up a good point about, uh, but the limpets are also, you know, they're species in, in New Zealand. I mean, I've seen them on the rocks there. I mean, I don't, and I don't know how, you know, much of, a, <laughs> much of a diet it is, you know, for in, in Aotearoa. But uh, have you tasted it, you know, from... Elsewhere, from, I have not, no. Okay, I, and, but are there things like poisonous <laughs> limpet? <laughs> I haven't heard. Oh, okay. So then it's just a matter of taste, then, right? I think so. Well, there, there, there is the opihi ava in Hawaii that's very bitter. It's not poisonous, but it doesn't taste good like mm. the true opihi do. So which, what, what, which one is the opihi ava? I mean, what does that look like? It looks just like an opihi. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's sort of like well, now, beef, now you got probably. me intrigued. You don't know what you're going to get. Yeah, because, <laughs> I don't know, maybe my, my uncultured... Un, uh, taste buds, they all pretty much taste the same, but I like them all. But uh, Anyway, so the uh, endemic nature of this is that, uh, for the most part, these have all pretty much grown in, in Hawaii. They're all unique to Hawaii. Yeah, unique to Hawaii, only found here. And what about, uh, what about in the um, Papahanao Mokuakea you know, National Reserve? Is, that, is, the, is the same species there as well? Yeah, um, there are not koele, to my knowledge, but there are alinalina and makayauli that are found up in the northwestern Hawaiian Islands. So, Tia, I mean, so has that uh, species pretty much, uh, you know, uh, traveled Maintain. across the entire, you know, Hawaiian island chain? Well, so NOAA has been leading the expedition up to the northwestern Hawaiian Islands um, since 2009. And... Um, we have gotten up as far as Gardner Pinnacle, but we haven't actually surveyed further than that. Mm. So we've gotten kind of, we've, we have a pretty good sense of what's at the southern part of the monument. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where we've kind of determined no koele are found. Mm. But there are both the Blackfoot and the Yellowfoot. And are you seeing that because there's not as much human involvement because it's a pristine environment, are they thriving as if the 1900s never happened? Or is there is is it still kind of a, a matter of scarcity up there? Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, it's a game changer when you go up there and you see the abundance of opihi. I mean, you know, the, the area the size of maybe the palm of your hand could have 50-plus opihi just cr- like on top of each other. Wow. Um, it's it's pretty crazy. I think that's one of the best things about getting folks up to the Northwestern Hawaiian Islands is you really you really get to see 
the difference between abundance in a pristine or healthy environment versus um, maybe the lack of abundance or or less mm-hmm. in other environments. Now, I, I was curious, uh, is the populations in the Northwest Hawaiian Islands, uh, I, are they potentially migratable to, to the main Hawaiian Islands, or is it the opposite way? I mean, the populations from the main Hawaiian Islands are the ones that actually populated the, the Northwest Hawaiian Islands. I mean, Tia or, or uh, Chris, I mean, what have your guys' studies revealed? I'll let Chris take oh. that one. Okay. Uh, technically, according to the best available science, Opihi colonized the Hawaiian Islands about 5 million years ago. Uh, they probably came from Japan or Ogasawara. And so at that time, the uh, island of Kauai was in the position of the big island, and Oahu and all the other main Hawaiian islands were underwater. So at the very least, it may have colonized Kauai um, to the farthest to the east, but more likely it colonized uh, one of the farther northwest Hawaiian islands like um, Puhahonu or even farther Lysiansky. Okay, okay. Uh, you know, we want to uh, welcome all our callers to call in at 941-3689 or from the neighbor islands at 877-941-3689. We want to welcome uh, Larry from the Big Island to Bite Marks Cafe. Welcome to the show. Aloha. Yeah, thanks so, for calling. Um, I can't hear you very well, but I this is about the uh, worldwide consumption of Opihi. Okay, go ahead. Okay, so um, I grew up on Oahu and uh, harvested maki, uh, you know, got swept a few times, saw the decline you're talking about. Back in the early 80s, I was in Europe backpacking around, uh, took my dive gear, <laughs> which made me stand out. And in England, it was actually in Wales, uh, there's a limpet there that, well, it ended up tasting a lot like Hawaiian opihi. And uh, they thought I was insane. I jumped in the water with my bag and... Like she was saying, there were 50 or 60 in every square foot, harvested a bucket full and mm-hmm. started eating them on the beach. They thought it was nuts. <laughs> Nobody harvested opihi there, limpid. And so your observation is that this is a, 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 a popular limpid across the uh, uh, world? and, and uh... It wasn't the same exactly, but it tasted much like the lima lima, you know, the yellow foot. And nobody was harvesting it, and that might be why it was so common. Well, uh, of course, you know, I guess the uh, the fact that it is a delicacy and it is part of the uh, culture to have this at, you know, various uh, uh, festivals here in Hawaii, I mean, that's definitely a strain on the population. And what I'm, I'm, what I'm curious about, and I think Scott brought this up, is that uh, this was something that has been observed in terms of the, the decline in the populations, but... Is the opihi resilient enough that it can withstand centuries of this kind of, uh, of of picking and still kind of come back and still be available? I mean, even in the 21st century? Maybe, Scott, do you have a comment on that? More suited to uh, respond to that in the from the science point of view. I was going to address the, the caller's uh, comment on the opihi in England. That sure. species that they're talking about is Patella vulgata, and it's actually imported to Hawaii and sold in stores. Um, but 
people should also know that it's not really opihi. Only um, limpets in Hawaii are are opihi, and anything else is you know limpets. And uh, just to see, just to give you an idea of how different they are, um, the opihi in Hawaii and the opihi in England shared a common ancestor over a hundred million years ago. Hmm. So that's well before um, humans evolved. Well, it sounds to me, though, that uh, on the one hand, you want to make sure people understand that there is a local endemic set of species of opihi, and those are the ones that are genuine and tie into our local and historic Hawaiian culture, and certainly that is where the demand is. But I can almost see where you could say, well, if we could make people happy with European um, opihi that nobody's actually caring about there, so it could be brought in by the bucketful, maybe we can ease some of the demand. How would you, how would you address that thought? I, I think that that's a good sentiment. I just don't think that OPE from England should be marketed as OPE. They're, they're limpets. Right, right, right. And it, it doesn't really address the issue that we have at hand today, which is the Preserving declining the local, populations yeah, yeah. of, of OPE. Uh, Roxy, well, I guess both Tia and Roxy, I mean, you guys are involved with some of the uh, the survey taking that's going on. What is there something that you convey to the people that are taking the surveys that make it so that they are consistent across the different surveys? I mean, what is it that's, you know, that's special about the way people are surveying the populations? Okay, for um, the two communities we work with out in East Maui, um, through the development of the Opihi Partnership and working with Chris on methods and how we're actually going to develop some kind of study, um, it took many years to get where we are today. And now we have an annual survey, which it consists of a chain transect um, every two meters down the shore. And we count and size every opihi species as well as other intertidal species. And we do that once a year for each site. And now we've been adding, with this new addition of the rest areas, we've been conducting rapid surveys where we're, we're counting only the Blackfoot or Makayauli Opihi mm-hmm. in the whole entire rest area, and then 100 meters on the north and south of that, and 1,000 meters on the north and south of that. So we do this mm-hmm. for both sites out in East Maui. So there are two different um, styles right now, and this year we're actually trying to bump up our surveys and try to do 10 surveys a year. Mm-hmm. And so what we're beginning to see is the more surveys we can do, the more accurate our data might be and the easier it might be for Chris to handle that data and analyze for results after this three-year rest period. Now, now you call it a, a rest period. I mean, is it, uh, is it an enforced rest period? I mean, well, how do people know that? You said it was just voluntary with signs. Right? <laughs> right. So so is that it? I mean, basically a sign? It's, it's, ver- it's a voluntary no-take area or a rest area. You mm-hmm. know, sounds a little bit more friendly to mm-hmm. the community. Mm-hmm. So right now, the communities are just trying to get support from other communities, people who visit the area, um, providing educational outreach for more buy-in and more support throughout the island of Maui also. And So, you, Scott, Scott, I mean, on Maui, are, how have you been able to get a sense what the community's uh, support of, understanding of, or, or uh, uh Recognition, you know, um, of these rest areas. How has it? Uh, how has it been playing out uh, on the ground? Yeah, I think um, in the in the the two different places where we have the two rest areas, there's very different um, circumstances. So, one is um, is a, a more kind of restricted area, restricted access area. So it's more just about reaching out to the local community 
and people who kind of traditionally pick in that area. And, um, you know, I can't say that we have 100% compliance, but, the you know, the more we get the word out and the more we get the young people from the community involved in the in, in doing the surveys with us, the more that they understand the reason behind the rest areas and then take that home to their families and, you know, people understand the purpose of, of it. And I think that, um, you know, as we go along, we get more and more support for the idea. Mm-hmm. Um, the other area is, you know, adjacent to Haleakala National Park. So it's a very exposed area. There's a campground right there, and there's, a, you know, a, a easy access for people. And, it, and it's a place where people come from the other side of the island or even other islands and then, you know, pick Opihi there. Um, and so that's more of a challenge because, you know, it's something where we don't have a lot of control over it and it's hard to do outreach on a level where we can really, you know, have get, get to everybody there. But we're just, you know, trying to do the best we can through signage and through um, having a presence there to just talk story with people during certain, you know, long weekends and graduation time and, mm, yeah. um, uh, uh, you know, good Opihi picking moons and tides and things like that when there's likely to be pickers there just to try to help them understand what, what the purpose of it is. And, you know, I think that um, even with even if we don't get 100% compliance, we're still, if, if you can just ease the pressure somewhat, then, you know, to go back to the idea of the, the resilience, the question of their resilience, it's part of in the way that they spawn that they're... Um, you know, they release the eggs and the sperm into the water all at the same time during certain uh, spawning periods. And so there's kind of a critical mass where if you just if you have too few opihi, then there's not enough of them to really successfully spawn. But if you can keep the population up to kind of a critical mass within that rest area, then potentially you can have really successful spawns, and th- then those... Um, those larvae will actually, uh, you know, the current will carry them around into other areas, and they'll help actually populate areas outside of the rest areas well. As that's, well so. Yeah, so, so um, uh, Scott, that's great. In fact, I wanted to sort of go back to Chris and ask him about, you know, what m- the data might tell him. But we want to hold that thought. We'll be right ap- back after this a short break to continue our conversation with Dr. Chris Bird, Scott Crawford, Tia Brown, and Roxy Silva about the Opihi Partnership. Indeed, what are we seeing from perhaps these rest areas? What can we learn from experiences with other uh, issues? For example, the sea cucumber harvesting that we had to deal with. Of course, we'd love to hear from you as well. You can call 941-3689 or from the neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. You are listening to Bite Marks Cafe. When tennis great Arthur Ashe held a news conference disclosing he had the HIV virus, he was bitter the national press had invaded his privacy. So I am here to protect what I thought and assumed was a right to keep personal matters private, or more specifically, just what are the parameters of personal privacy? I'm Sarah McConnell. Join me for With Good Reason, Thursdays at 6.30 on Hawaii Public Radio. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hi, I'm Jan Aldrich Clanton, author of She Lives, Sophia Wisdom Works in the World. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about female images of the divine in church. 
Sunday morning at 11. Support for Bite Marks Cafe comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, whose contributors help Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk show programming. Mahalo to the St. Andrews Schools, which includes the Priory School for Girls, the Prep for Boys, and Queen Emma Preschool. Welcome back. This is Bite Marks Cafe. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa, and we're talking to Dr. Chris Bird, Scott Crawford, joining us by phone, and in the studio, Tia Brown and Roxy Silva, about saving the opihi. That's right. We need to save the opihi. You know, and of course, that number to call here is 941-3689 on Oahu and 877-941-3689 from the neighbor islands where a lot of this uh, program is actually taking place. And right before the break, we, you know, we were talking about the, the actual surveys and collecting the data. And, you know, Chris, I want to sort of direct this to you because you're the one that is actually collecting or getting the data and maybe drawing some conclusions from the data. I would it's fair to guess that maybe the populations are declining. But, you know, if, if we've seen this happen since the 1900s, is there something to be said about the resilience of Opihi? And, and what is it that we can do now that perhaps protects their, uh, let's say, ability to, to replenish themselves, you know, in the 21st century? Obviously, I mean, they were able to survive from the 19th century through the last couple of hundred years. Uh, but, what is it that we need to do now that's better than perhaps what we did before? Okay, well, what, what we know right now is that, indeed, the OP fishery crashed over 70 years ago, and um, yet Opihi have not gone extinct. There's no species of Opihi that has gone extinct. They've survived to present. Um, the data that we've been collecting across the Hawaiian archipelago I've used to estimate the declines in Opihi on each island. Um, I don't think it would be any surprise to your listeners. On the island of Oahu, Opihi have declined by 99.9% to up to 100%, where the Opihi Koele, the underwater Opihi, seems to be uh, functionally extinct on Oahu and has been since at least the 1970s when another professor at the University of Hawaii was studying them. Um, I think the issue of managing Opihi is uh, a fairly simple one. We understand enough about the biology of Opihi, um, their life history, how fast they grow, how far they can they can move as, as larvae, to know what would work to revive the Opihi populations and really increase the number of Opihi that, that people can eat. But the challenge is people. And people and our political system, and can we um, agree upon a set of rules that would allow the OP to flourish as well as the, uh, you know, the OP fishery and our ability to enjoy OP. Okay, very good, very good. You know, we want to um, also put the, put the uh, um, number out there for people who are interested in giving us a, giving us a call, 941-3689 on Oahu. Or 877-941-3689 from the neighbor islands. We want to welcome uh, Kamaka from uh, Honolulu to Bite Marks Cafe. Welcome to the show. Aloha. Thank you so much. Uh, I may have missed it. Uh, however, I guess I, I'm really curious. You know, uh, you're right. It's uh, getting the buy-in from people in the community. Like we had long-line fishermen out there just overfishing, you know, certain kinds of fish with their long lines. Um, there were monies that had to be... Uh, put toward enforcing that you know, out there on the ocean. 
So I guess my question are two things. I didn't hear anything about whether pollution or, you know, what we're putting into the water has any way affected the OPE, the limpids there, or has it been totally overfishing that is the issue? That's a, that's a great question. Uh, does uh, Roxy want to ch- take that one, or do you want to pitch that over to Scott or Chris? I guess we can pitch that to our science professional. Okay, <laughs> Chris, it's all in your hands. Okay, so... First of all, on the pollution, the answer is we don't know, but I have a Hawaiian graduate student, Patricia Cockett, from the island of Kauai. Uh, She's doing her Ph.D. to determine whether the pollution from streams is affecting the OPE populations. And it's not just streams that would be the problem, but the the human activities that are occurring within the Ahupua'a um, upstream of, of the OPE. So the answer to that question remains to be determined. However... I, I can uh, speak to the effect of human harvesting on OPE. Uh, we see a very strong relationship between the uh, number of people that live on an island, um, how much OPE habitat there is, and then how many OPE are left on that island. And in, in other words, uh, through our studies in the northwestern Hawaiian Islands and Papahanaumokuakea, um, we believe we can get a picture of the way that OPE populations looked prior to human contact. We can use that information to determine how much the OPE populations have declined, and it tracks uh, very tightly with the amount of people that live on an island. Mm-hmm. And so that would indicate that um, the effect of people eating the OPE is, uh, is a pretty large impact. But there could also be pollution effects. Well, now, thanks, Kamaka, for for that question. Thank you. Now we're so we're talking about sort of these rest periods, voluntary opportunities to let the population kind of resettle and begin to grow again. And I mentioned before the break there was the recent emergency ban on sea cucumber harvesting because it just to me it seemed like it almost came out of nowhere, where all of a sudden they were being harvested by the boatload, and that certainly would have an impact on a local population's ability to to sustain itself. Um, Tia, do we have any sense that these sort of breaks, when you're talking about permitting and allowing access to an area, for example, um, do that do those kind of measures have a measurable effect on being able to give any perhaps uh, endemic species an opportunity to recover? Have we seen this? Has it succeeded? If not for sea cucumbers, for other things? Wow, ask me the loaded question. No, <laughs> just kidding. Um, I think you know it may be a little different for Papahanaumokuakea Marine National Monument because it's so remote. Um, but I would I would venture to guess that yeah there probably is um, there probably is a difference between areas that are closed off and maybe require a permit to go in or um, versus areas that are open to the public and definitely Papahanaumokuakea Marine National Monument since its closure in 2006 and it's like you know establishment as a monument um, there has been I think definite changes in allowing that ecosystem to rest and recover, particularly the lobster fishery. I'm definitely no expert in it, but um, there are signs that it's coming back and that things are, the rest is helping. And so I'm sure it would translate over to the main Hawaiian Islands as well. Well, you know, Tia, uh, since we're throwing the uh, loaded questions to you, I think I'll throw another one at your way. You know, uh, the idea of, of restrictions, I mean, you know, we have restrictions where there's like no fishing in Waikiki because we're you know trying to replenish the the uh, the reef fish 
stock in Waikiki, and there's, so there's a ban. Uh, why doesn't there exist a ban on opihi picking on Oahu? I mean, given the fact that the opihi partnership isn't even doing anything on Oahu because we're already like you know ninety nine point nine nine percent decimated, but why hasn't a restriction, a ban, just literally be placed on Oahu? Well, I would say it has two things sort of play into that. One, political will, and two, the lack of data. And so I say that I would say that the two of them go hand in hand. Um, Chris and I have had conversations recently about trying to engage more folks, the communities around Oahu, especially areas that may have intertidal zones that are conducive to having opihi mm-hmm. over there, mm-hmm. um, to try and start to get a better idea and a baseline um, data set going so that we can start that education and that outreach, well then, which would then, I think, lead into maybe that political will. Um, but there's also no bans or official bans on any of the other islands, as far as I know. So it's that's still, right now, it's kind of a voluntary program, for sure. Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's um, there's harvest size limits, mm-hmm. and Chris would know more about those, mm-hmm. but no actual real bans on things other than size limits, which goes across the board with marine resources, fish. Right. So so what does it take for a, a marine species to get sort of like that level of visibility within our political hierarchy to you know create laws around whether you can or cannot pick up or fish for fish? I don't know. Maybe it's just the right person at the right time getting the right data. Mm-hmm. Maybe if a senator can't get Opihi for opening day, <laughs> possibly we're going to see that. Um, Roxy, has there been um, any research into what? I don't even know if it's ridiculous to be asking this question. Um, repro- uh, creating and breeding Opihi in a enclosed environment in a in a in a lab, for example. Actually, I believe Chris has done this in a labs. If Chris want to elaborate more on that, sure. Does that help with the replenishment, perhaps, if you can create a good population like a, in a like lab? Like a sort of nursery? Chris? Uh, Opihi hatcheries are definitely a possibility. Um, since the 1970s, there have been efforts to um, raise Opihi in an aquaculture system, and all efforts that I know, how, that I know of have failed in, in one way or another, mm-hmm. either the the meat is too soft and it's not crunchy or it's just not economically viable to raise them. Most recently, um, there was a professor at the University of Hawaii who was uh, trying to uh, raise opihi in in the lab, and they ended up feeding them nori. And uh, (laughs) we all know that nori, you know, we like to eat that, and it's pretty expensive to feed opihi that. So I, I think it's a major challenge to raise opihi um, in an aquaculture environment because of how dynamic their natural habitat is. It's hard to recreate it. Have, well, have, have, has anybody tried you know, raising them to a certain size and then releasing them into the, 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 the natural habitat? It's, uh, it's a possibility. Uh, nobody that I know of has, has tried it. I was thinking that you know, certainly when they're clinging to the the reefs and they're clinging and they're being attacked by waves, those muscles, which is what we're, we're dealing with here, certainly they're probably a lot more exercised than they might be in an aquarium in a laboratory. Now, uh, Scott, so we have these uh, voluntary rest areas, a couple of them, different dynamics at play. Um, when do you think you might be able to say uh, whether this plan is successful? When would you, would it be after the next breeding season, perhaps, that you could be able to start saying this worked or it th- didn't work? 
Yeah, I think so. I mean, the, the actual biggest spawning uh, period for opihi is the summer, around the summer solstice. And, um, you know, you can see cohorts in size moving up from that. Um, and I think, um, you know, we, we've had the rest areas in place for about a, a year now, something like that, more or less. So, um, you know, as we continue to do the surveys and gather data, hopefully we will be able to see some some. Uh, actual results for these management practices and you know it's it's a, a kind of a trial thing to see how it works and and just continue evolving um, hopefully uh, you know the idea is um, that other communities may take this on and create a sort of ring of OPE rest areas around the mm-hmm. island um, and help the population overall. And then I think it's also really important that outside of the rest areas, we're trying to educate folks about the kind of uh, pono gathering practices and the idea of uh, OPE don't breed in the freezer, so just take what you, take, take what you need and, and uh, leave the rest. Um, you know, pick only those certain within the size class, don't leave the small ones so they have the ability to continue growing and leave the really big ones because they're the prime spawners that create much more offspring. Hmm. Um, Don't pick all real heavily from one area. You know, if you're going to pick, pick a little from here and then keep moving so you don't just completely wipe out one whole area. You know, um, And if people, you know, who have good intentions and want the OPE to be there for future generations understand some of those basic practices, that can help as well. Well, definitely good advice. I hope to see some OPE public service announcement posters, but unfortunately, we're running out of time. So where can we go, perhaps, if we want to you know, get involved with the OPE partnership, uh, Roxy? I mean, you have any place that we could uh, turn people to? Um, the Nature Conservancy's website is nature.org, but we also have a Facebook page and Instagram account. But for these community events, we go through Kipuhulu Ohana. Okay. So, Scott, uh, maybe you can send me a link, and I'll share that up on our, our show notes uh, later on uh, this, okay, uh, this yeah, evening. People can find us on Facebook at uh, Facebook slash uh, Kipuhulu Ohana, and we post uh, information about our you know monitoring days and stuff like that. Okay, very Fantastic. good. Fantastic. Well, Dr. Chris Bird is the Assistant Professor of Biology at Texas A&M. Scott Crawford is Executive Director for the Kipuhulu Ohana, and Tia Brown is Permits and Policy Coordinator for NOAA. Roxy Silva is the Marine Maui Marine Program Coordinator for the Nature Conservancy. We want to thank you all for joining us today. Mahalo, Nui. Thank you for having me. Mahalo. Thank you, and thank you for listening to Bite Marks Cafe. Join us next week when we'll look into a recent program announced by President Obama called Computer Science for All. And, of course, if you miss any part of this edition, you can find the podcast of tonight's show at bitemarkscafe.org. And if you have any comments or suggestions, you can email us at feedback at bitemarks.org. You can also find us on Twitter. I'm at bitemarks. And you can follow me at Hawaii. Our engineer is David Chong, and our executive producer is Beth Ann Kozlovich. And we leave you with our song pick of the week. Here's a band called Streetlight Cadence and a song called The Great Unknown. See you next week on another edition of Bite Marks Cafe. Only was another life
Then I would chase you to the stars.